This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We continue this week's series, A World Without, with a discussion on the scarcity of healthy topsoil, vital to our global food supply. Let's revisit a conversation I had with David Montgomery, a University of Washington professor and author. A previous book was Dirt, The Erosion of Civilizations, which became a documentary. Montgomery's latest book is Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life. Are we running out of dirt and soil? Every once in a while you see an article and it says, we are going to run out of soil eventually and the planet is in peril. You know, uh, that dirt book that you mentioned was one that I wrote a decade ago that touched on that subject. And we won't run out completely of soil, but we are degrading the world's agricultural soils at a rate that's undermining our ability to feed the future. There's a UN report that came out a couple years ago that argued that we're losing uh, 0.3% of the world's agricultural production capacity capacity each year due to soil loss, to losing soil, and soil degradation, sort of losing organic matter and degrading the soil. And 0.3%, it's a small number, right? It's kind of what our bank accounts are making with interest these days. You don't notice it year to year, yep. but it adds up over time. And so that dirt book that you mentioned was looking at ancient civilizations and how they literally plowed themselves out of prosperity by undermining the fertility of their land. We're doing the same thing at a global scale. And we don't really have anywhere else to go this time. So we're not going to run out of dirt. But I think agriculture needs to change so that we can sustainably feed the future. And that's what the more optimistic recent book, The Growing a Revolution, one's all about. How much of our dirt is no good right now? Roughly a third of the world's agricultural land has been taken out of agricultural production since the last ice age. So we've degraded lands like uh, uh, Libya and Syria, places that today are not exactly prosperous hotspots, but for which we have Roman tax records that document large harvests of wheat. You go there now and there's no soil left on the landscape. So there's some places you can point to where the damage is really lasting and really bad. Or you could look at the United States where we've actually reduced the organic matter content of our soil, the amount of carbon and formerly living things, dead things, organic matter, by about 50% at the scale of the nation on an agricultural lands. So we've degraded a fair amount of our, of our sort of our natural inheritance of fertile land so far through our long-running agricultural experiment. And we're on track to degrade another third of it in this century, and yet our population is rising. So we need to figure out how to actually grow a lot of food in a manner that rebuilds the fertility of the soil, that regenerates our ability to continue farming. And fortunately, there's ways to do that. Um, it's just not what we typically think of as conventional agriculture these days. Conventional agriculture these days seems to include Roundup or some variation of Roundup, and it seems like the fix is in and everybody's doing it and we cannot break that cycle. Yeah, you know, what I did in writing that Growing a Revolution book was go around and interview farmers who had already restored fertility to their land. And, you know, I'm a geologist by background and training, so I wasn't going to tell farmers how to farm. And I thought I'll go interview people who've already made the transition to a really productive style of agriculture that um, doesn't degrade fertility. And the things they had in common uh, were that they were not disturbing the soil, so they, they were not plowing. And a lot of those no-till farmers are also using Roundup. But these guys were all using cover crops to suppress weeds instead of Roundup and using diversity in their rotation. So that those sort of three things, growing more than one or two crops, keeping the land covered with cover crops, and not disturbing the soil with tillage, are a combination for promoting the beneficial soil life that can rebuild soil fertility in ways that can get farmers so that they don't need the Roundup. They don't need as much insecticide. So they're not using the herbicides. They don't need as much fertilizer. That saves them money, and they can grow as much in their harvest. 
which gives them a higher, a better profit margin. And if you look back at ancient societies, over-reliance on the plow was what really undid a lot of soil fertility. But cover crops, crop rotations, those are old ideas. Those are not yeah. new ideas. They were traditional in societies around the world because they worked to help sustain the fertility of the land. But if you're tilling it, if you're plowing it regularly, you were undoing all that good. It just took a while for it to unravel. Uh, what we have the opportunity to do now is to take the ancient wisdom of crop rotations and diversity of rotations and even having livestock on land that would then grow crops out of the whole uh, manure cycling aspect and combine that ancient wisdom with the modern technologies that allow us to do no-till. And that could be things like a cover crop roller instead of an herbicide, getting more ecologically minded in the sequencing of crops so you actually use your cover crop to suppress weeds, which replaces the herbicide. There's some very innovative farmers out there who figured out very effective ways to integrate this system. I'm talking with David Montgomery. He's the author of Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life. He's a professor at the University of Washington and the College of Environment. Can you give us an example of a farmer who is doing this and how much he uses herbicide or how much he uses a tractor? And uh, I, I can't yeah, sure. envision it. Yeah, there's a gentleman that I visited named David Brandt who lives near Carroll, Ohio, who is a really good example of one of these what I like to call organic-ish farmers because he's a conventional farmer in the sense that he's growing conventional crops for the conventional commodity market, but he's doing it in unconventional ways. And his big sort of secret, which he's happy to tell anybody about, is that he's planting very diverse mixes of cover crops in his rotation. So if you go out in his fields and there's not corn or wheat or soybeans standing in it, there's 10 or 12 different species uh, that kind of looks almost even like a wildflower field or a native prairie. But he's planted things like turnips and brassicas and a whole diversity of plants that are there to feed the microbial life in the soil, to feed the fungi and the bacteria in the soil. And so he'll kill those with a crop roller and he just lets it rot. And so he's, he's using those cover crops to extract nutrients from the subsoil, get them into the cover crop. Then he kills the cover crop, lets it rot. That takes those nutrients and puts them into the topsoil. So he's a, sort of using the cover crops to plow his land. And that fertilizes his next cash crop. So he ran me through the economics of his farm and his neighbor's conventional farms. He's using less than half the diesel. He's using about a eighth of the nitrogen fertilizer and less than a fifth of the Roundup. And he was experimenting from when I interviewed him a couple of years ago with the idea of just not using any fertilizer and in some plots not using any herbicide. He's basically moving towards almost using no agrochemicals. And his yields are higher than his conventional neighbors because he's rebuilt the health of his soil. His, the soil he started with was kind of a beach sand khaki color back in the early 70s when he started experimenting with no-till and then getting cover crops now. Now what he has is really rich black earth. It's really huh. healthy soil. And it's getting all that carbon back in the ground. That color difference is all carbon. It seems like there's a lot of corporations who want farmers to keep doing things the way they're doing them and have kind of created a model for them to do this. And the economic driver is there for them. Oh, yeah. Do big corporations kind of get to win over the small guy who has an example of a no-till farm with cover crops? Well, if we look back at sort of what's happened since the Second World War as the backdrop against which we can think about that, you know, American farmers, when they started to specialize in sort of one or two crops on a farm and we separated animal husbandry from cropping, 
farmers got really good at producing a large amount of single crops off of a farm. And one of the things that did is it fed the American commodity markets for corn, soybean, and wheat, which drove the price the farmers get for those down. So they were essentially penalized for being so good at growing so much of what little they were now growing that the return on it went down. And at the same time, all the inputs that the system of farming they were advised to use based on intensive fertilizer use and large-scale agrochemical use and then eventually GMO seeds and a lot of Roundup for certain crops – the cost of those inputs all went through the roof, and not to mention the cost of diesel over the last 50 years. So farmers are kind of caught in this squeeze play between the, the corporations that are selling them the inputs that they need on the front end, and they're quite profitable, and the corporations that are buying their harvests on the back end, which are quite profitable, but the farmers are getting low prices for the stuff they spent a lot to grow. They're the ones that are squeezed in the middle. And the way I sort of look at the history of post-Second World War farming, that's one of the big unacknowledged sort of patterns that played out. And I found a deep well of interest among farmers when I went to interview them for Growing a Revolution that if they could figure out ways to spend less on herbicides, spend less on diesel, spend less on fertilizer, but still grow just as much – and they could do it by adopting practices that are under their control, it gives them some leverage over that margin being so narrow. And if they can drop their costs, they can basically increase their profit margin. But as you're intimating, the companies that are selling them all those inputs aren't going to be exactly lining up to advise them to adopt practices that would enable them to use less of their products. Do you have a vision of what the outcome here is like? Does Monsanto become like this uh, little shop that doesn't really sell a lot of stuff anymore? And do all the farms uh, almost become organic farms? And you know, I, I started teasing a number of the farmers I visited who were conventional farmers. And I also visited some organic farmers. These methods can help make organic farms more sustainable because the, the farming that did in the Roman Empire was organic agriculture. So there's problems with long-term degradation under organic that need to be addressed as well. Um, but the conventional farmers I visited, I started teasing that they were becoming organic-ish farmers were ones – who were very receptive to that, but who would never actually be organic farmers. That was just not what they wanted to do. But I sort of view the prioritizing soil health as the foundation for our agriculture, as what hopefully will be the next agricultural revolution. We've gone through four, by my count at this point. You know, the idea of farming in the first place was revolutionary. Then we figured out cover crops and crop rotations in different societies around the world. Then we mechanized and industrialized in the 19th century. And then the whole green revolution and the ongoing biotechnology revolution would, would be the fourth revolution agriculturally in my mind, the way at least I number them. And I think prioritizing soil health could be a comparable fifth agricultural revolution that is not inconsistent with using all the modern technology that we have at our disposal. So, you know, microbial inoculants, and that's an area that Monsanto, for example, is moving into as they see as a real business opportunity to try and develop biological inoculants that could help kickstart the biology and serve as a replacement for some of their other products. So I what, think what are those biological inoculants? Oh, uh, mycorrhizal fungi. So fungi that can partner with plants and get mineral nutrients out of the soil and into the plant or nitrogen-fixing bacteria. And you can imagine the idea of inoculating corn seeds with microbes that once the corn sprouts – 
partner with the plant and they capture nitrogen from the atmosphere and trade it to the plant in exchange for sugars that the plant can manufacture through photosynthesis. Uh, those kind of symbioses. And many plants have those kind of symbioses already, but not all of our major crops do. And so you could imagine making a case for using new technology to develop applications like that. So I actually don't think that the sort of agrotechnology business is ever going to go away. I don't think we're going to go back to, you know, 17th century organic farming. Um, I don't think we'd want to. I think we'd be less productive. But I think they're marrying the ancient wisdom of crop rotations and diversity and things that build soil health with the modern technologies that we have at our disposal, that could be revolutionary for the future of agriculture and make it more sustainable, make it more environmentally friendly. And the book that Ann and I, my wife and co-author on The Hidden Half of Nature, are working on now is trying to look at connecting soil health to human health. Do practices that build soil fertility translate into food that actually helps support human health better? I think the answer is going to be yes. You know, that's kind of my suspicion too. (laughs) You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm talking with David Montgomery. He's the author of Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life, and we're talking about how to do that. The whole idea of um, the Green Revolution, people debate whether it was successful or not, or harmful. Yeah. Some people seem to think it should never go away and we should just keep green revolutionizing. And how do you feel about the term and the idea? Boy, it's a real, it's a real interesting and controversial one. Uh, and there's lots of ways that you can argue the pros and cons on it. What I see is that we kind of made a strategic mistake at the time that we went all in in the developed world on the green revolution and then exported it to the developing world. And that mistake was that we thought that the only problem with feeding the world was growing enough food, that it was all about yield. It was growing high volumes of food. And making sure everybody had enough to eat. There's nothing wrong with doing that, making sure nobody goes hungry. That should be a priority. But we forgot about the part that we need to grow nutritious food as well, that we need to nourish the world, not just feed the world. And when you look at the crop breeding that went into the Green Revolution technologies, we were basically breeding crop varieties that were not as good at taking up mineral nutrients from the soil or that were diluting them by growing more seed heads on the same plant, you're basically taking what it took out of the soil and dividing it into smaller pies. And it's a well-documented decline in nutrient density in food since the Second World War to the present day. You know, broccoli today has about a quarter of the calcium that broccoli did around the time of the Second World War. So to get the same amount of calcium, sort of a critical nutrient, you'd have to eat four times the broccoli. And whether or not you love broccoli, that's a lot of broccoli. And so what I think we really need to do is sort of rethink the Green Revolution, not necessarily undo it, but rethink it and try and reprioritize to bring back the idea of of soil health in combination with our technology so that we can keep our crop yields up but get the nutritional value of the food back to where it was to get the micronutrients and the plant-based phytochemicals back into our food as a foundation for good health. And what Ann and I wrote about in The Hidden Half of Nature was sort of the way that the soil science had evolved to the point where we could understand how nutrition mineral elements were getting into plants, but then also understand what our own bodies were doing through the breakdown of the foods we eat, particularly the plant foods, the complex carbohydrates, what your doctor calls fiber. That's what your gut microbiome ferments, and it really bolsters our health. And yet, what did we do to the Western diet in the second half of the 20th century? We reduced our fiber intake and increased our simple sugar intake. We starved our microbiome. 
And that's been shown to be sort of a contributing factor to a whole wide range of chronic illnesses that increasingly plague people. Now, the degree to which you could undo all that with diet, that's still controversial. We're going to wrestle a bit with that in the new book. It sounds like you've come to a place where you are optimistic about health and crops and dirt. Um, and it didn't exactly look like that was exactly where you were going to end up uh, 10 years ago when you were uh, writing sad things about the history of agriculture. You're absolutely right. I never imagined when I was writing the dirt book that I would write an optimistic sequel 10 years later. But that's one of the powerful things about visiting farmers who've already done it. And you can take a shovel out to their fields, look at what they've done to restore their land. And it's not a theory. It's not abstract. It's very concrete. It's very real. And if they can do it on their farms, I've got to believe that more farmers could do it on their farms. And so I, I have come to a much more optimistic place. You know, whether or not we'll follow through and embrace a soil health revolution as the next agricultural revolution, well, we'll just have to wait and see how that plays out. As you mentioned earlier, there's powerful forces that may not be all that thrilled. On the other hand, I think that many of them could find real new business opportunities in trying to promote things that build soil health. And one of the best things I think we could do for rural economies in North America is rebuild the financial health of family farms, which this idea of maintaining outputs while reducing input costs would allow us to do. So there's some real major economic advantages, I think, that we could harvest down the road, if you'll pardon the pun, um, from going this route. Well, it's uh, good to hear some optimistic things about farming and, <laughs> and about the soil. David Montgomery is the author of Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life. He was also author of Dirt 10 Years Ago and also The Hidden Life of Nature. We've talked about as well the microbial roots of life and health. Thanks a lot for joining us, David, and good luck in the future. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, sand is one thing you would think it would be impossible to run out of, but you can possibly run out of the kind of sand you use to make concrete. And tomorrow on Worldview, we are going to talk about the global sand crisis. So join us for more of our series, A World Without, this week on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Viviana Garcia-Blanco and Jasmine Hussein for production assistance. And thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.